listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Another week. Another week of the best show on earth. Oh, that's a big that's a big call. According to it. many of our reviewers, we would not <laughs> qualify as that. But welcome to Best Served Cold, the uh, what are we? The podcast where we drink wine. I'm really struggling with my words this really evening. Are. But yeah. we are the podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. I'm one of your hosts, Laura, and my spirit animal is Mojo Jojo from the Powerpuff Girls. Nice. And I'm Tama J, a dingo stole my serotonin. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the, the J yeah, stands Yeah, look, for? that's gone. I'm going to... I'm going to veto that from now okay. on. I ran out of J things. A There's dingo only... stole my serotonin. Yeah. That... <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed with that. Trademark that before this We're going to put that on a out. fucking t-shirt. Yeah. A dingo stole my serotonin. Oh my God. We're going to make millions. Oh yeah. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another week of crime and murder and headless corpses. Yeah. And censorship apparently we need mm. to cut down on our mm, old mm, foul mm. language we don't do that over here no 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 how has your week been tama it's been pretty good just been following up my notes on the part two of ivan Milat story that i will be covering today um developing a new cocktail that we're drinking tonight well i mean we didn't make it up no but it's a a new thing that i haven't actually previously made yeah this week was actually a close one normally i feel like there's one cocktail that wins by a landslide this week it was 53 percent to 47 percent and the passion fruit daiquiri snuck in by the skin of its nose the skin of its nose skin of its teeth whatever the skin of its it won yeah it won, and I was very happy because I don't like bourbon whiskey, and the other cocktail was made with bourbon whiskey. So run us through quickly a passion fruit daiquiri tama. What's in it? Straight up a uh, passion fruit. Wait, what did you say? You said passion fruit whiskey. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean. <laughs> the passion fruit daiquiri. The is passion fruit daiquiri. Forty four, forty five milliliters of white rum. Then you add in. 15 milliliters of lime juice and 45 milliliters of passion fruit pulp. So we couldn't find any passion fruit, so we're just using canned pulp. Well, it's still passion fruit pulp. Yeah. Uh, I think passion fruits might be out of season for us, possibly. Maybe. Limes are are also out of season, apparently, because they're fucking super hard to find. So expensive. And like hardly any stores have them, so it's been really difficult trying to think of cocktails because fucking like 60% of them have lime yeah and limes are um little green nuggets of gold at the moment in Australia really they are but uh yeah that's the cocktail we're drinking they are dangerous dangerously delicious too drinkable like just a little bit of sweet a little bit of tart from the passion fruit and then the rum is very hidden, so it's yeah. not an alcoholy tasting drink. It's very summery. I think this may be my new drink of the summer. Oh, really? We had our first hot wow. day. 
we had our first like warm day since like March. Yeah, it was very strange. It was really weird. Felt very I don't like it. No. <laughs> I got <laughs> too used to layers. People. Yeah. We are both winter humans. I feel like I was just getting into the groove of like winter outfits as well. Yeah, now it's summer and it's time to figure out what outfit will allow you to be the most naked without actually being naked. Yeah, I feel like also just summer in Australia is just so hot. There's no real, there's no real fashion you can wear. No, it's just like don't die. Yeah. That's the fashion is don't die of heat stroke. Because like you see summer outfits in that and it's like, jeans and a button-up and things like that. And you're like, fucking, that's... Like, I can only wear, get away with that in, like, certain temperatures. But it's, like, upwards yeah. of 26, 28 every single fucking day in summer. Yeah, it's just not a good time. For the Americans listening, I don't know what 28 degrees Celsius is in Fahrenheit. I think, like, 100 degrees Fahrenheit is, like, 30 degrees right. for us. I okay. think. I don't know. I can't be bothered to look it up. I'm not that invested. Do you know what... I ask you every week, how's your week been? And you never ask me how my week has been. I'm a little bit offended. Really? Yeah. We always talk about your week. We never talk about mine. Is that a thing? Is that Have I actually never asked you for your I week? I don't think you've ever... I think I just start talking about my week, but I don't think oh, okay. you actually ask me well, how I, my week has been. It kind of felt like... I feel like it's probably it's part of our intro. You ask me and then you talk about your week. Yeah, but sometimes... I would like to be asked. Sometimes I would like to feel like you have a vested interest. Okay, in well, how was your week? My then? week was okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> no, my week, our, sorry, did, my week was nice. I'm on uni break. This is my last week of uni break. This is my Tomorrow is my last day of uni break, and then I'm back into wow. the second half of my semester and back to never having spare time or being able to see my friends. So, Hell yeah. Fuck those people anyway. I like our friends, but nope. it is it's been Sorry, nice like but the ever f- the ever present feeling of dread that I'm forgetting to do something has not left me for the entire two weeks even though I don't have anything to do. It's uh you know, it's just cute millennial things. Just yeah. that ever present sense of doom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to answer um our previous question, thirty degrees celsius is 86 degrees fahrenheit jesus so how much is 100 degrees fahrenheit in celsius because i always hear people they're like oh it's like 100 degrees outside Uh, no okay well now i'm gonna when people say it's 100 degrees outside i'm gonna be like no no damn that is like 30 degrees too many let's just keep it cold all year round that's i vote that just move to alaska that no that's too cold okay I th- I feel like I'm an, I feel like I should live in England because they are basically chilly and rainy most of the year, and then they have a couple of warm days. That's my vibe. Yeah, yeah, I vibe with that. Oh, also, someone who is a friend of a friend who listens to this show said, and I'm highly offended. Said apparently I have an Aussie girl bogan voice, and I was so upset. Because I would like to think I don't I enunciate at all most things. That's like quite un. I don't know who has said that, but I don't want to offend anyone. But I think that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. That you have a bogan voice. I don't think I have a bogan. You voice. You don't have a bogan voice at all. Like, do they even know what a fucking bogan is? 
I don't know. I don't know them. It's a friend of a friend. So. What? Anyway. Like, because you on, sound Australian, you're a fucking bogan. Apparently. Anyway, I right. was just a bit like, oh. Yeah, because we start off every episode going, yeah, fucking welcome to the Aussie, uh, mm. uh, what's the name of the show again? Oh, yeah. Best Serve Cold. <laughs> Best. Best Serve Cold. B-I-S. Anyway. Fuck. I'm Sharon. I'm one half of the show. <laughs> And this is Tez. He's the other half of the show. Are you going? That would be pretty amazing, though. That's if that stupid. was actually how we did the show. That's actually, that would be amazing. I'm actually really anyway annoyed at that. I am going to try and enunciate all of my letters and make it less bogan for you. <laughs> so that is my aim. It's like saying that like a, a, f- a French person sounds like a really French person. Do they have bogans in France? I just feel I like everyone in France is just so refined and beautiful. It's but it's like Do they know, have like what is I need to know now. Is there like did, a redneck But if they did bogan French How would you person? like how would you where was the where would the line be? Oh bonsoir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bonsoir, mademoiselle. Uh, a wee wee croissant. That's what a. That's yeah. what I imagine. Bonsoir, Pinot Noir. <laughs> I'll have the glass of the Champagne. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do they have um croissant? I feel like every culture has like its version. It's of like the hillbilly. redneck hillbilly yeah. bogan, but I just can't see because like. Brits have like the chavs, I guess, is the closest. Yeah, it's an, it's a very exaggerated would... accent of where you're yeah. from. So, like so for Britons, like it's chavs. French version, just a peasant. Is that? I don't know. I'm I don't, sure. Now I need to know. Sure if anyone a... knows, can you please tell me? I'm because... sure there's a term for it. Like I think even in Russia, there's like um, there's one. Uh... I don't know. I, I I don't know. I'm gonna Google it when we finish this episode. What is a <laughs> What is a redneck French person? Yeah. Anyway. Um, one little housekeeping thing. Ooh, we okay. are also, this um, episode of the podcast is sponsored by Podcorn again. Yes. Thank you, Podcorn, for sponsoring another episode. Yep. We very much appreciate it. Helps uh, us keep the show running, keep the lights on, keep liquor in our cocktails. Thank you very much. Thank you to Podcorn. Yes. It's the second episode in a row, so we very appreciate the uh, patronage. Of our Lord and Saviour podcast. Oh, <laughs> anyway, shall we jump right into yeah. it? Yeah. I feel like um, because it's passion fruit, it's uh, making me that like tartness. It's making me salivate a lot. <laughs> I feel like I have a lot of uh, spit in my mouth. Sorry if that's an overshare. Just feel like it I'm, is, but I'm over on. over lubricated in my mouth region <laughs> right now. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, hashtag just podcast things. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag Side another note. one star review. Side note, they my mouth is over fucking saliva for like five minutes. I feel like now someone's going to be like, she sounds like a bogan. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we do get much more lovely reviews than we get one star reviews. So, yeah. Props to all those guys. It just makes me feel like I'm famous. You know what they say, you're not famous until someone hates you. True. So, joke's on you, Sparkly Deb. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, today I'm going to be talking about a woman that I had literally never heard of ever until I started doing my research for this week's episode because sometimes when I'm feeling, usually I'll go into a research for an episode knowing who I want to do and every now and then I'll just feel a bit kind of blocked and not really have anyone in particular that kind of sparks my interest and so I'll Google like interesting serial killers or interesting, if I want something specifically, interesting cannibals or whatever. So I googled interesting killers and this person came up and her name is Belle uh, Gunness and I was kind of blown away by what a batshit crazy lady she is and the fact that I'd never heard of her before and she's responsible for potentially as many as 42 murders. Holy shit. Yeah. With 13 of those confirmed, but potentially as many as 42 attributed to her. How is this not a more well-known thing? I know, and she's a female killer as well. That's a huge number. just, yeah. Like, and then that's 42 people. That's a lot of fucking people. Yeah, so confirmed 13, potentially 42. God damn. Even 13. That's a, yeah. That's a lot. And it's like a bus worth of people, 42. And on April 28th, 1908, the body of a headless female corpse was found in the wreckage of her burned-down house, and this was the end of Belle's rampage. Whoa. Mm. Wow. So, Belle, born Brynhild Polsdatter Storsit, was born November 1859, so we're going way back, in Norway, and much of her past is sort of shrouded in mystery I think mainly due to the time that she was born and the fact that there wouldn't have been a lot of, I guess, eyewitness accounts or much would have been written down about her past, but I think also due to the fact that she immigrated at a relatively young age. However, one story which is widely accepted as fact was while she was still in Norway, she was attacked while pregnant by a man from a very wealthy family. He kicked her in the stomach and she miscarried, but due to his wealth and status, he was never tried for her, the assault. And then friends say that after this incident, she was basically forever changed. And the man who attacked her shortly died after from, quote, stomach cancer. But once you get into the story, you decide if you actually believe it was stomach cancer or not. Wow. So deciding to follow her sister, she immigrated to America in 1881 to try and basically live out the, you know, all-American all dream of power and wealth and the white picket fence and the two and a half children and all that sort of stuff. Shortly after immigrating, she met and married Mads Albert Sorison in 1884. After two years together, they opened a confectionery store together and the business was wildly unsuccessful. <laughs> and shortly after the, their, the, they opened the store, both the store and their home mysteriously burnt to the ground with the couple claiming the insurance money on both premises. Nice. So during their brief marriage, it was believed, and this is one of the things where a lot of historians and investigators kind of have differing opinions, but while they were married, it's possible that she had two, potentially four children, although some investigators say that they had none or that the children were adopted. Two of the babies, Caroline and Axel, died early in their lives mysteriously and both of which had life insurance policies taken out and collected upon 
after their death. Oh, shit. Which a lot of people have said it was odd, one, for this time, and two, to have life insurance policies on babies. Of their infants. Yeah, infants. Wow. So at the time of their death, it was recorded as acute colitis, symptoms of which include nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal cramping and pain. Most of which many point out are super similar symptoms of poisoning, and the two babies die from the same thing. Mm. So, oddly enough, Sorensen had two life insurance policies taken out for himself, which overlapped by a few days because so one expired and then they had another one that was due to commence, but they had an overlap of a day. Sorensen conveniently dies of a heart attack during the day that the policies overlap. And Bell manages to claim on both of the policies. And while his family does launch an inquiry, inquiry into his death, and the first doctor who sees him thought he was suffering from poisoning, as he was being treated for an enlarged heart prior to his death, it is ultimately ruled as a heart attack and no charges are ever filed. The very next day after his funeral, Bell applies for the insurance money against the two policies and, and is paid out. $8,500 in that time, which today is roughly equivalent to $260,000. Jesus. So with this money, she purchases a farm in Indiana in uh, Laporte, and it's reported shortly after purchasing it, both the boat and the carriage houses on the premises burned down. So we're kind of sensing a bit of a pattern here. While preparing for the move, initially she meets Peter Gunness, who was also born in Norway, and they marry on April 1st, 1902. Just one week prior to being married, Peter's infant daughter from a previous marriage, I assume, dies from uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. Less than a year after they're married, Peter himself has a tragic accident where he's bludgeoned to death by a sausage grinding machine. Oh. Bell tells police that he trips and knocks the heavy machine which falls off a high shelf and ultimately causes his death. Peter's death gets her a further $3,000 on his life insurance policy or about $92,000 in today's money. Man, just racking it up. Racking it up in a very short period of time as well. So many people think that Peter's death was very odd considering that he was a hog farmer and an experienced butcher and not someone who was likely to be A, clumsy around his equipment, or B, store it in a place where it could fall on his head. Yeah. <laughs> After an inquest by the district coroner, his death is announced as a murder, and he convinces a jury to look into the case. As well, it's quoted that Jeannie Olsen, Peter's other daughter, said at school, Mama killed Papa, she hit him with a meat cleaver, and he died. Don't tell a soul. Oh, shit. Jeannie is bought before the... Before the jury, but denies this remark has ever been said, and Bell ends up convincing the jury that she did no wrong. Because I guess we're talking early 1900s. There's n there is no such thing as DNA evidence at this time. Oh, not even close. Shortly after her trial, Bell gives birth to a baby boy called Philip, and in 1906, Bell tells neighbours that Jeannie has been sent away to finishing school, and she's never seen again. Oh, oh no. Between 1903 and 1906, Bell continues to run her farm in Indiana with Indiana with relative peace, and there's not really much you can find about those kind of periods. Round about 1906, Bell decides that it's time to seek love again. She's ready. She's got herself out on the market. She's ready to find a man. She leaves an ad in the single section of various newspapers around Chicago, which reads. 
a comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visits. Triflers need not apply. What a wow. beautiful ad. Yeah, poem. So several men respond because don't forget she's quite a lovely Scandinavian, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, yeah, foreign-looking woman. Yep. One man who responds is called John Moe, who is another Norwegian immigrant, and he arrives at the farm bringing with him $1,000, which he intends to use to pay off Belle's mortgage, which is what he tells the neighbors when Belle introduces him to them. However, she introduces him as her cousin, and shortly after he arrives, as in less than a week, he disappears. The next suitor who comes around is George Anderson, also from Norway, who agrees to pay off Belle's mortgage once they are married. He's known as one of the only men to leave the farm. After he wakes one night to find Belle standing over him with a candle and a sinister expression on her face. When she sees he's awake, she runs from the room and unsurprisingly, Anderson leaves the farm the next day, that is heading back to Missouri by train. Fucking creepy. So creepy. Oh, She's just no. standing over him with like a one of those little dishes with yeah. the candle sticking out, just staring the candlelight. Fuck that. Lighting her face from below. Getting all those beautiful, sharp Norwegian yeah. features in shadow. And she probably has that ten Ted Bundy look in her eyes kind of thing. Oh, she'd definitely have crazy eyes. Yeah. Surely. She'd have to. Yeah, rough. So at this stage, from what I read, Belle basically has suitors lining up at the door, most of who are never heard from again once they arrive. And Belle keeps ordering these huge wooden trunks, which a man called Clyde Sturgis delivers to her house and is quoted as saying that she would toss them over her wide-set shoulders like marshmallows and carry them into the house. During the day, Belle keeps the house completely shuttered and during the night is seen digging holes in her hog pen. How this is not just one big red flag after another, I don't understand they're like oh these men keep going to a house and never being seen she keeps ordering these trunks and digging <laughs> six foot by three foot holes in her hog pen but i don't know what's going on like bro she killing the dudes yeah, she must be burying a lot of clothes or yeah. something she's burying a lot of rubbish yeah. so strange it must be a norwegian thing they probably it's probably Funnily enough, at oh, that time, they yeah. probably were like, oh, it must just be a Norwegian. Yeah. Those Nor Nor those Swedes? No, that's Sweden. Norwegians? <laughs> what do you call Norwegian people? Norwegians? I don't know. Another thing to Google when we finish this episode. That's a good question. I think S just Norwegians. Yeah. They don't have a fun name. Yeah. Sorry, Norway. So in 1907, Olby Budsbury arrives at the farm from Wisconsin and he is an elderly widower who is last seen at Laporte Bank, where he mortgages his own land, signing over the deed to the bank and obtaining several thousand dollars in cash. When his sons question his disappearance, Bell simply states that she's never seen their father before. Throughout 1907, several other men come and disappear from the farm, and finally in December, Andrew Helgelian, who was a bachelor from South Dakota, writes to Bell, and in January she responds to the latter with this. I'm going to try and say it in a sensual voice. No, I'm not. I'm just going to read it. 
That was I as that gonna, idea was leaving my head. I, I was thought, like, "That's a terrible." I thought idea. you were gonna say in an accent. I was gonna be like, "No, no, no I, don't. I don't even know what a Norwegian accent would be. A Norwegian accent. Norwegian what accent. a Norwegian accent. Apparently, like Sean Connery. Norwegian accent. <laughs> Maybe I'll read it like, no, I won't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person and and you I like better than anyone in the world. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world, we will be all alone and each with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly when I hear your name mentioned and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Wow, I, I'm genuinely interested in like how she came to just devalue human life like this, and to yeah, be this manipulative. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. We weren't. There's not much known about her backstory, is there? Mm, That's not the a lot. Thing. Yeah. So with that soaring declaration of love, Andrew writes a check for $2,900 or $89,000 in today's money and flies to Laporte to be with his one true love. Upon arriving at Laporte, he almost immediately visits the local bank and deposits the check into Belle's account and is never seen again. However, Belle makes a few visits after his disappearance, depositing a further $1,100. Now... When she had originally moved to the farm, Belle had hired some help called Ray Lampfear, who at this stage has basically fallen head over heels in love with Belle and is basically her lapdog and will do anything for her. He does, however, become incredibly jealous of the various suitors that arrive at the farm, and so he starts making a fuss whenever a new one will come around, leading him to be fired in February 1908. Shortly after firing Ray, Belle goes to the local court and essentially tries to have him committed, stating that he's not of sound mind. However, a sanity hearing is held and Ray is ultimately found of sound mind and released. A few days after his release, Belle returns to the court and argues that he's been coming onto her property and trespassing as well as threatening her and her children. After this, Ray is arrested for trespassing. Wow. However... After his second release, he returns to the farm to try and see Belle again, but she basically shoes him off the property. And this is sort of when things start to take a bit of a turn for old Belle. Also, every time I say Belle, I think of Beauty and the Beast. I just, just thought that. I literally that's just thought who that. who I'm picturing. Yeah, but with blonde hair. So Ray begins going around town making thinly veiled threats, but also begins telling people... Helgelian won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps, as in Andrew Helgelian. Now, at this stage, Andrew Helgelian hasn't been seen at the farm for quite a while, and his brother, Oshley Helgelian, becomes concerned when eventually Andrew never returns home. So he writes to Belle, querying Andrew's whereabouts, and Belle responds saying that she hasn't seen him and he must have gone back to Norway to visit family. Oshley doesn't believe this, though, and he kind of thinks that his brother wouldn't have just up and gone to another yeah. country without telling anyone, and he believes that he must still be in the Laporte area. Belle, with, I'll give her this, the biggest balls in the universe, says that Oshley is welcome to come to Laporte to look for his brother, and she'll even help 
search for the missing person, but she reports searching for someone missing is an expensive endeavor, and if Oshley wants her to help, she'll need to pay her. Sorry, he'll need to pay her. Wow. Holy Just shit. biggest balls in the world. Damn. So Oshley does indeed end up coming to Laporte, but not until May. So at this stage, this is when Belle starts to get nervous. So she knows that Oshley, Andrew's brother, has his suspicions and he's planning to come to Laporte. And she also knows that Ray knows exactly what has happened to Andrew and now hates Belle with a passion. So Belle visits the local court again and says that she fears for her life with Ray around and wants to take out a will, leaving her an entire estate to her children. She also goes to the bank and pays off the remainder of her mortgage. On April 28th, 1908, the man that was hired to replace Ray, Joe Maxson, who lived on the second floor of the Gunson farm, wakes up to the smell of smoke. Initially, he says he thinks it's bacon frying downstairs. However, as he slowly sort of wakes up more and he realizes the smell of smoke is getting stronger and stronger, he gets up and opens his bedroom door to find the entire hallway just in flames. He yells for Belle and her children, but hears nothing in return, so he closes the door and leaps from the second floor window, just narrowly avoiding dying in the house fire himself. He races to try and find help, but, the but by the time help arrives, the house is a charred ruin. Four bodies are found in the home, three children's bodies still in their bed, as well as the body of a headless woman, the head of which is never located. Now, keeping in mind that Belle has only recently gone to the local court talking about how she worries Ray Lamphere will kill both her and her children, so he's basically arrested immediately. And before the police even get a chance to talk to him, he yells out, did Widow Gunson and the kids get out all right? He does, however, deny having anything to do with the fire and claims that he was nowhere near the farm when the fire occurred. A young man called John Soliem is brought forward and claims he was watching the house that night when he saw Ray running down the road shortly before the home burst into flames. Ray denies this but is arrested and charged with arson and murder. Now this is where it gets, I mean it's already pretty interesting, but this is where it gets very interesting. A part I've purposely left out is the fact that Belle is a big lady. She's over six feet tall and weighs about 95 kilograms. Damn. The body of the headless woman, once they take into account the missing neck and the head, is only around five foot three and could weigh no more than about 70 kilograms. They also take measurements from several dressmakers in the area that made Belle's clothes and conclude that there's no way that the body in the house is Belganess. The body who was found had its organs tested and is found to have been dosed with lethal levels of poison. Belle's dentist comes forward and says if they can locate any of her teeth or part of her sort of dental section, he can definitively say whether it's her body or not based off the fact that he reckons he knows the work he's done on her. And so they begin to sift through the remains of the house where they begin to find more bodies as well as a piece of uh, bridge work with porcelain teeth and gold crowns. Bell's dentist identifies them as work that he's done on her and the body is then officially ruled as that of Bell Gness. Wow. But keep in mind, this is like a, a denture sort of thing, like a removable denture. Right. That matches hers. 
that he's done. Well, he said he recognizes the work that's been done, but it's a removable denture. Yeah, okay. So shortly after the fire, Oshley Helgelian arrives in Laporte and brings up his missing brother and how he believes that Andrew has been a victim of foul play by Bell. Then Joe Maxson comes forward and mentions the barrows and barrows of dirt that Bell had requested he bring into an area where the hogs were kept and that there were many shallow holes in the ground which he had covered with this dirt. After this statement, police start digging and, inco- and uncover the following bodies. Jenny Olson, who originally disappeared when she supposedly went to finishing school. Andrew Helgelian, Olby Budberg, Thomas Linbo, who'd worked for Bell three years prior. Henry Gertholt, who had gone to Laporte to wed Bell a year prior. Olaf Schwenherd, John Moe and Olaf Lindblom. Because of the lack of proper identifying techniques back then, they uncover what they believe are 12 bodies in total, but the following are potential victims of Bell's going off their whereabouts and eyewitness accounts of their last sightings. Now, there are a lot of Scandinavian names in here, <laughs> which I'm going to try my best to pronounce correctly. Nice. So these are the potential victims of Bell. William Mingay, a coachman of New York City who'd left New York on April 1st, 1904. Herman Contiseur of Chicago, who disappeared in January 1906. Charles Edmund of New Carlisle, Indiana. George Berry of Tuscola, Illinois. Christy Hilkven of Dovray Borant County, Wisconsin, who sold his farm and came to Laporte in 1906. Charles Nyberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia, told friends that he was going to visit Ganesh in June 1906 and never came back. John H. McJunkin, uh, he left his wife in December 1906 after corresponding with a Laporte woman. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant. Henry Bisk of Laporte, who disappeared June 1906. Bert Chase from Indiana. He sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow that he was going to look up. His brother received a telegram supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother, his brother investigated, however, and found the telegram was fake. Tones Peterson of Rush, Rushford, Minnesota, is alleged to have disappeared April 2nd, 1907. A gold ring marked SB, May 28th, 1907, was found in the ruins also. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to the port to meet a widow and three children in October 1907. T.J. Tifland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come to see Gunness in 1907. Frank Redinger, a farmer from Wisconsin, he came to Indiana in 1907 to be married and never returned. Emel Till, a Swede from Missouri, is alleged to have gone to, 1907, gone to Laporte in 1907. Lee Porter of Bartonville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow at Laporte. John E. Hunter left Pennsylvania on November 25th, 1907, after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Two others, uh, two other Pennsylvanians, George Williams and Ludwig Stoll, also left their homes to marry a widow in Laporte. Abraham Phillips, a railman, of Burlington, West Virginia, left in the winter of 1907 to go and marry a rich widow in Laporte. Benjamin, are you sensing a theme here? Yeah, a rich widow in Laporte. Yeah. 
So there are a lot of names. I did write them all down, but I'm probably not going to read them all because it's going to get a bit monotonous. But yeah, wow. But basically a lot of names and then there's another six unnamed victims who were reported as likely being her victims, but were never named. So after the fire, as we know, Ray um, Lemphier was arrested and charged with murder and arson. And on May 22nd, he's tried and denies all charges against him, with his defense mainly centering around the fact that he believes that Belle isn't actually dead and he's been, she's absconded with all her money and set him up to take the fall. Yeah, for sure. The defense rips apart the teeth evidence, arguing that the gold in Bell's crowns would have melted in the intense heat of a fire, which you do know gold has a very low melting it does. point. That's a very good point. So they actually do tests in blacksmith's forges trying to replicate essentially the same heat temperatures that a house fire would have. And they find the porcelain and teeth basically disintegrate in the heat and the gold also melts. Yeah. So Ray is ultimately found guilty of arson, but not of murder, and is sentenced to 20 years in prison, where he later dies of tuberculosis. In 1910, Ray's reverend comes forward and claims that during his dying hours, Ray confessed and revealed a lot of his crimes, also swearing that Bell is still alive. Ray argues that he'd never murdered anyone, but had helped bury many of her victims. Ray stated that when a victim arrived, she made him comfortable charming him and cooking him a large meal. She then drugged his coffee, and when the man was drugged, she would split his head with a meat chopper. Sometimes she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then smother them once they were asleep. And then because she was so big, she'd carry the body to the basement, place it on a table and dissect it. She would then bundle the remains and bury those in the hog pens and the grounds around the house. She basically became an expert at dissection, partly thanks to the instructions she'd received from her second husband, the butcher, Peter Ganes. Ah. And to save time, she sometimes would just poison the victim's coffee rather than drugging them. And sometimes, apparently, if she was overly tired, she would merely chop up the remains and in the middle of the night feed it to the hogs. Damn. Ray also cleared up the mystery of the headless corpse, confessing it was a woman that he'd lured under the false pretense of becoming a housemaid. He claims Belle had drugged the girl, cut off her head, and then dressed her in her own clothes, drugging the children and then smothering them to death, and then set the fire and disappeared. Man, that is just monstrous. Yeah. So Ray argues that at this stage, Belle is an incredibly wealthy woman, having murdered potentially 42 men and accumulating more than $250,000 through their gifts or insurance policies, which in today's time is about $7 million. God, Local bankers also admitted that the day, days prior to the fire, Belle went to the banks and withdrew nearly all her remaining savings from Holy her account. shit. The mystery has remained with many saying that they cited Belle for several years after her death. In 2007, her body was exhumed and DNA tests were attempted based off saliva from one of her letters, but ultimately there was sadly not enough for a reliable comparison and the mystery remains unsolved to this day. Holy shit. Wow. Crazy. And I have never heard of her ever. That's such an interesting case because it's like, the H.H. H. Holmes Yeah, thing, it's, it's got like... a little bit of everything. You've got the Black Widow with an incredibly high kill count, and then you also have the mystery of, is she dead? Isn't she dead? Did mm. she, like, fake her death and then run off with all the money? But I'd never heard of it. It's just so... It's bizarre because 
a lot of the cases we kind of cover are during the prime time of like 50s to 70s to 80s of murders where you can kind of coin it up to like many different things psychologically it's a rough background it's head trauma it's army background it's all these different things and then prior to that it was like police admittedly were like it it, it was pretty common to just be it was a disgruntled lover or a neighbor or someone who wanted some sort of money incentive but it's this is just insane to think even back then people were so disassociated with the whole concept of human life and all these men that were lured from the like many corners of the states to go and marry this yeah. wealthy widow in Laporte and just were never seen from again. Which, when you think about it, isn't too odd considering there's a whole TV show centered around guys that go to like, uh, you know, countries like Indonesia and Brazil to like marry women and they come over yeah. to America and get their. Um, citizenships or green cards, I think it is. But yeah, yeah, like potentially 42 murders. So insane. Like that's a lot of fucking people. Yep. Like that's a lot. <laughs> 42. You'd think after a while you'd be like, man, I have a lot of money. Maybe enough's enough. Yeah, shit. Well, I think you'd probably... She obviously had some very severe mental health issues. And... Yeah, but where did it come from? I guess I don't know. It's it's that's the, the great thing. that's the great question. I guess yeah. we have with all these killers. Like, where did it come from? Where did it go? Because it wasn't where did just it come a from Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but because it wasn't just like a, a a select victim, you know what I mean? It was men, no. It really doesn't. But it was sound... children as well. Her own, yeah, quite children potentially her own children, potentially the children of her husbands before and children that weren't even hers yeah she was just at some point babies toddlers infants you know actual children like that's that's the thing that grips me is that if it was just men being murdered for their life insurance you'd be like okay that can be like boiled down to something but murdering her own children, children yeah that's something else And it's so crazy because all these articles you read where they interviewed people who knew her or or were her neighbors, they were quoted as saying that they knew her and she seemed like a lovely lady with a who just had a life of bad luck. And it's like, really? (laughs) After like the fourth baby dies, do you maybe not think it's bad luck? Yeah, after the guy whose job it is to work with meat and butchery equipment dies from a sudden a sausage grinder falling on his head wax his head several times no that did not happen (laughs) yeah sorry yeah (laughs) i'm calling bullshit like saying a police officer shot himself with his own gun yeah uh, yeah you never know but yeah yeah, that is the crazy tale of belle ganesse who i just hope i've been pronouncing her name correct because there was so many scandinavian names and i was like oh my god people are going to yell at me for messing up these names well if there's anyone listening who is either from norway or is of norwegian descent let us know um how it is meant to be pronounced yeah do it as you're listening to this episode go back to the start of my story get a drink and take a sip every time i mispronounce a name (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) that'd be fun there's just so many every time i go to write one of the name down for my notes i'll be like oh 
I would no. actually genuinely. Um, Why can't you name be like John Smith or something? Genuinely, if there is someone who is listening who is of Norwegian descent, let us uh, hit us up on Twitter and uh, let us know. That'd be a cool little thing to see. That would be very see. cool. Having some Scandinavian listeners. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Thank. Uh, it'd be awesome to see that. So if you are, hit us up. Well, I think we're going to take a very brief break yeah. to hear from our amazing sponsor, Podcorn. Podcorn. And then we'll be back for Ivan Milat Part. Two. Part deux. Part deux. And go. Hey, Tama, did you ever wonder when we started this show if we were ever going to be able to monetize it? Yeah, I did actually. It seems kind of uh, daunting at the start to reach out to other brands and pitch our show without ever really knowing if we were ever going to get a sponsorship. And I thought exactly the same, which is why I was really happy when we found Podcorn. So Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. It's basically like a dating site for, for podcast sponsorships. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any of your rights to your podcast and Podcorn is here to support you as a creator at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for your brands. And protection of your creative rights, especially on the internet, is something that all creatives have been worried about since, you know, at some stage or another. The Marketplace mission is here to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when we monetize. Because we work on a lot of different creative platforms, and I think at some stage or another, you have either had work stolen or been unfairly compensated for the work. So Podcorn is an amazing platform to help end that. Click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Thank you, Podcorn. Thank you, Podcorn. Welcome back. Daiquiris are so good. Yeah. I just polished off my third. (laughs) Third or second? Third. Yeah, it was my third. They're just... They're just I well I also my favorite I think my favorite fruit is passion fruit so it's my yeah I definitely it's my weakness I definitely like a bit of passion fruit I think white rum just works well in cocktails mm, as well it's, it's very just subtle. very yeah it's very subtle and smooth yeah I find vodka a bit like ooh not a yeah it depends on if you get a good one you get rid of that kind of nail polishy thing to it yeah true because m- my main use for vodka up until this point in my life has been jello shots and it's kind of like you just try and buy the cheapest vodka you can oh, find because the jelly masks the flavor so we've been buying the 30 dollar yeah. bottle of vodka from aldi which tastes like paint thinner it's the same thing with bur- like the bourbon though like when you compare the bourbon to like an irish whiskey or an american whiskey it's like yeah that's you can, very true it, it's sweeter and it's also got that real nail polish like alcoholy thing to it Whereas the Irish one's much more. See, much this is smoother. why I like gin because gin is so botanical. You can have cheap gin and it still kind of tastes all right. Yeah. I'm a gin girl. Anyway. Well, I am excited to pick up from where we yeah. left off. So, if last you week. haven't listened to last week's episode, please first listen to that one because we go into the pretext of what happens with. The Ivan Milat murders and the backpacker murders. And it's not going to make a lot of sense. No. I mean, even if you sort of understand the story, you know the story. It's one of those things where there's some details you probably aren't aware of that kind of make make up 
a lot of the context I'm going to be talking about today. So if you haven't, go check that out right now. I will wait for you right here. We'll be here. Though if you have listened to last week's episode, we will be kicking off right after I was talking about the the tips and the leads that police officers were getting uh, from the general public and the computer systems such as NetMap that the police were using to trace potential leads. So, there were the the two of the last bodies that were found, I believe, or the two last victims that were found, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, the two, I believe, English girls, um, I, th- I think I'm. Oh, could I be, think, oh gosh, my memory's I, not great. Yeah, I could be. I can't remember what I did yesterday. Fucking myself over there, but um. Anyway, yeah. those two victim after those two bodies were found, there were two de- two detectives, detectives Godden and Detective McLean McLean, sorry, they had amassed a a plethora of physical evidence, but they were no closer to gathering any real clues to nail down an identity of who was responsible for the murders. So there had been several sightings of the girls prior to their discovery, and even a few of the t- uh, few of the leads and the um, eyewitnesses could bring detectives closer to when around about the time the was the girls had actually died. So the trail was already cold when police became involved, but now it was becoming colder. In an attempt to try and shed new light on the investigation, Dr. Rod Milton a forensic psychiatrist with over 20 years of crime scene experience was asked to consult on the case. Now, if you remember from last week's episode, I kind of talked a little bit out about Australia's own little John Douglas. Yes, I do remember. He's not this. I mean, he's essentially a little John Douglas, but I mean, this is in the nineties where, you know, um, profiling was a pretty common thing at at this point. The ISU, I think it was investigative, something unit in FBI was a a big thing and all around the world it was becoming a pretty common thing to profile yeah I think it was becoming a lot more of an accepted means of so I think this is like 89 so it would have been like a huge thing by this at this point only a few years later John Douglas did a lot of his work in like the 60s 70s 70s? to 80s was I think the I think it was mostly the 80s, like the, the early 80s, late late 70s. Yeah. Is when he kind of started doing profiling. So, Dr. Milton had previously aided police in the hunt and arrest of John Wayne Glover, the Northside serial killer who had bashed and strangled six elderly women in 1989, which is a very interesting story, maybe a potential mm. teaser for a future episode. But the profile that Dr. Milton had provided to police was incredibly accurate, except for the age. Milton had suggested the killer would have been a teenager based on historical data, which indicated the most serious offenses against age victims were committed by people under their 20s. His analysis, although slightly inaccurate, led to Glover's capture, and Glover was 59 years of age at his time of arrest. Hmm. Okay. So, you know... He's a, he knows his shit. Pretty, yeah, pretty close except for the age. Yeah. Detectives drove Dr. Milton to Blanglo at his request and he explained to them, even though he had access to the police reports and photographs, he needed to view the actual crime scenes themselves 
uh, so he could get a good feel of the way the killer had approached his victims. Yeah. He stepped out of the car and walked to the two gravesites in turn. After wandering slowly around the area for some time, he sat quietly in the middle of the scene and thought about why the killer had chosen that particular site. Why did the victims die the way they did and what was his motivation? His first thought was that the killer was familiar with the area. From experience, he knew that killers very rarely operate in unfamiliar surroundings. This wasn't a crime of opportunity, but rather a planned murder. Walking between the two graves, he puzzled between the police and himself the details of the investigation. What was found and where? He pondered the various different various differences between the two deaths. So Caroline Clark was killed in cold and calculating fashion. The way that um, her clothing had been wrapped around her head indicated the killer had done so to depersonalize herself. But the angle of the shots suggested that the first bullet may have been fired while she was kneeling executioner style. Her clothing was intact except for her front fastening bra, which was unclipped. Her clothing was of uh, the lower body was placed was in place at the time of death. This indicated to Milton that her killing was not sexually motivated, but more in the style of an execution. Hmm, okay. The single stab wound to her body, he believed was inflicted after death as a final example of the killer's control of the victim. In fact, prior to Dr. Milton's involvement, police thought the exact same thing and they thought the murders would be the work of more than one killer. The manner in which... Clark's body was laid out with the arms above her head also suggesting control and planning on the part of the killer. So with the victim acting out the role of, you know, a submissive after death, essentially. Mm. In comparison, Joanne Walter's body and burial site indicated rage and uncontrolled frenzy. The disarray of her clothing, Milton thought, indicated more of a sexual attack, so much more different to to Clark's body. The shirt and the bra had been pushed up, and but the clasp was still fastened. The zipper of the jeans were undone, but the top button was done up. No panties were found on the body or in the area. Milton mm. thought that because the shoes were still on and laced up, the jeans had not been taken completely off. It was more likely that they were dragged down to enable the killer or killers to sexually assault her body. Before or after her death, the underwear may have been taken as a sort of trophy. Souvenir, yeah. Which is a very common thing we found amongst sexually activated. Yeah, because they relive the... Exactly, yeah. yeah. So when asked by police for a possible motive, the basis of most homicide investigations melted under under the single word, pleasure. He believed... Oh, that's so creepy. He believed that if there were two killers involved, one would be older and dominant. The other, although equally sadistic, would tend to be more submissive, which he bases kind of off of the two... the way the two bodies are found. So he suggests that there could be brothers, potentially, sharing a common interest in guns and hunting and probably had been involved in other sexual-related crimes, either together or separately. Which, if you've listened to our prior episode, yeah, describes our Milton, bo- our, our Malap boys, pretty well, very well. So later at his Sydney office, Doctor Milton recorded his official profile and point form. He believed the offender would be living on the outskirts of a city in a semi-rural area, be employed in a semi-skilled job, probably out of doors. 
being involved in an unstable or unsatisfactory relationship, have a history of homosexuality or bisexual activity, have a history of aggression against authority, be aged in his mid-30s, and at no time did Mr. Milton give any indication that the deaths were the work of a serial killer. But as the end of the year drew closer, the investigation team dwindled in size and resources were redirected to other crimes. They They knew they needed some real hard piece of evidence if they were going to solve who mm. was behind these yeah. killings. So again, just off that off that list. He checks most of those. Most of it. We don't know about the, the homosexuality, homosexuality or anything. Yeah. But lives on the outskirts of a city, has a job outdoors. We know he works with with uh roads. He has been in a relationship with a woman who was pregnant with his cousin's baby mm. and that fell out and she later um was the relationship a, not the baby no but she later um <laughs> was in court giving a statement against him yeah and the whole aggression against authority thing it was said that that her him and his well, brothers the whole, were, yeah that all the brothers didn't like the police well they were constantly in trouble with the police yeah. and didn't work with the police at any any way shape or form so Here's where we get into who would later become one of the key witnesses in bringing Ivan Milat into custody. Love it. So, we're going all the way to Birmingham, England. Paul Onion, who was aged 27 at the time, was that reading... That is... Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that is <laughs> the best name. Paul Onion. Paul Onion. I want my surname to be Onion. Funny name. Laura Onion, Tama Onion. I don't, I'm not too sure if it was onion or onions because I keep reading different like articles and some label him as onion and some label him as onions. Well, when they say onions, are they referring to something that he owns? No. No? Okay. <laughs> That's what right. I mean. So I'm just going to call him Paul Onion. So he's reading... Just call him Paulie. 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 So Paulie so reading different tabloids about the, the noun quoted Forest of Death, referring to, of course, Blangelo. The details of his own brush-up with an armed robber on the same road three years earlier seemed like more than just a coincidence Mm. to him. So he contacted the Australian High Commission in London and on the 13th of November 1993 was put in touch with Task Force Air, to whom he gave details of his attack and full description of his assailant. However, it wouldn't be... It would be about five more months before they would hear from him again. Wow. So, in between that time, Milant started to pop up in different investigations. Police discovered a statement in their files from Ivan's brother, Alex, who had contacted detectives in October 1993 with a strange story. 18 months earlier, he claimed he had seen two women tied up in the back of two cars with a group of men near the Belangelo State Forest. But the details and dates didn't match the didn't match, and the man Alex said he was with failed to corroborate the story fully. Can I just say, yes, if you ever come across what you think are two women tied up in the back of a car, please for me report <laughs> that shit to the police yeah. straight away. Don't wait until you hear about a serial killer. Just call the cops and be like, hey. Think I saw two women being kidnapped. Yeah. Like you might want to check that out. 
similar premise to like two, two episodes ago, I think. Why would you wait to the whole thing of that? Like you hear someone getting stabbed and you're like, ah, oh, it's probably nothing. But to actually think you've seen <laughs> with your own eyes two women tied up in the back of a fucking car. Oh, it's probably just some sort of kink. Am I oh, right? it's yeah. just boys will be boys. Yeah. <laughs> Good I old just bl- thought they were having fun. I just thought it was, you know, Belanglo. Why is it that whenever I pretend to be an Australian man, Jim Jeffries comes out of me? Because he's like the embodiment of yeah, he a, is. an I Australian love Jim man. Jeffries. All right. Well, anyway, police obviously discount Milat's statement because it can't be corroborated. Right. So investigators also found a report from a the wife of a worker at a building materials plant detailing her suspicions of her husband's workmate. The tip-off came early October, just before the second set of bodies were found. Referred to a, they referred to a co-worker called Paul Miller. Police already knew that Paul Miller was really Richard Millat, Ivan's younger brother. Ooh, secret identity. Later on during the murder trial, it was alleged that after the British girl's bodies were discovered, Richard had told workmates, quote, there's more out there. Ooh, that's creepy. They haven't found them all yet. Ooh, I don't like that. He would go on further later on on other occasions, allegedly saying, quote, they haven't found the Germans out there yet. And Ooh, like, I know who killed the Germans. Literally, like, the hairs on my arms are standing up. That's so creepy. This was months before any of the three German victims were discovered. Were found, yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I mean... Nope. That is a no from me. In a phrase which would come back to haunt him, Richard, although he denies making any of these statements, was also quoting as saying, Stabbing a woman is like cutting a loaf of bread. Is it, though? Yeah. Is it really? I mean... I don't know if you know I the definition know of... I don't know if I fully agree with that statement, Richard. I don't know if you know the definition of red flag. I don't know. What sort of fucked up bread is he eating? But I think that quote should go right next to what is a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so on it's the... like, what a... Can, sorry to interrupt. That's okay. What a strange... Out of, all of the things you could possibly pick yeah. to compare to stabbing someone. Is he talking about like it's easy? As in like it's so easy to yeah. just cut it, Or is I, I, he trying to actually say it's the same physiological setup? I think he's saying that there's literal resistance to a knife going inside of a person's body. But I think that depends on what part of the person you're stabbing. Who knows? I've I feel never like stabbed anyone the before. abdomen, certainly. But like up top, you get like ribs and shoulders and all sorts yeah. of shit gets in the way. I feel like it would be stabbing a fucking body. Would I don't the- know. I don't ever want to know what stabbing someone feels like, to be honest. I'm quite happy going my entire life without knowing what that feels like. Yeah. Thank you very much for that in- insight, Richard. Or but- am I? Yeah. <laughs> I like to keep Tamar on his toes. Yeah. Maybe I'll wake up one night to you standing, standing over, over you with a candle. You'll be like, where the fuck yeah. did you get a candle yeah. from? <laughs> this is 1860, <laughs> motherfucker. All right. Anyway, on uh, November 16th, the 400 police in the Belanglo State Forest pause for a one minute silence out of respect for the dead because now their six week search of the area was officially over. Oh, that's that's sad. 
By the end of the year, police were making inquiries about Ivan Milat discreetly at the New South Wales Road and Traffic Authority Depot in Granville, Sydney. They found out the dates of his holidays and his days off, and they also approached Ivan's brother Walter at his home while checking gun licenses. Ivan, however, got wind of their investigation and, unbeknownst to detectives, began to stash his firearms in a secret alcove in Walter's home. Hmm. In January 1994, Senior Constable Paul Gordon followed up his theory that the backpackers were all hitchhiking when they met their murderer. He checked the reports for attacks on travellers who had left the Liverpool area and came across Ivan Milat's acquittal of a 1971 charge for rape of two hitchhikers. So, things okay. weren't okay. looking too good. Can I just say, if you have a suspect... Why have you not looked this up already? Like, why was that not the first thing you looked up? Like, has he been charged with something before? <sighs> They're like, let's go talk to his brother. Like, no. Has he done, has he raped someone before? Yes, he's well, probably your guy. It was, a, it, was, it was an acquittal. But it's still on, rape it's still going to be on his record though, surely. Yeah, but I think it's different. It doesn't like pop up as. By the way, no, this guy's but, raped before. But like, wouldn't you think that would be the fir- one of the first things you? Anyway, sorry, I'll stop interrupting. No, you. it's this fine. Is, this is it's, just making me mad. I know, but it is. It's also just like, like we we didn't develop as quickly as America did in terms of I yeah. guess, investigations. Yeah, I guess we didn't have as. Luckily, we didn't have as many. No, and the, crazy serial killers. We too. were illy ill prepared. Yeah. Incredibly ill prepared for things like this. Anyway, so as you can probably fucking tell, it's not looking good for Ivan. <laughs> it's really well, not looking not good for him. Well, not at this stage, no. No. So he was, at this point, the prime suspect for these murders. He'd be getting nervous. Yeah. The task force still needed stronger evidence, however, before they made a move on him. And they mounted a major surveillance operation, shadowing his every move. Tradesmen's vans began to appear regularly near his home in Cinnabar Street on the housing estate in Eagle Vale in Sydney's southwest district. Malat was often seen staring back at police through binoculars through his front window. He's like, you're not fooling me with that plumber's van. I know, a flower trap when I see them. (laughs) I get flowers for me wife all the time. In April came a breakthrough. This is when Paul Onions had told police by telephone from England the full details of what happened to him while he was hitchhiking south of the Hume Highway in January 1990. So we've come full circle from the Onion story. So many layers to this story. There are, there really are. And you just keep peeling them and peeling them up. So... His attacker drove a white four-wheel drive. He called himself Bill, and he had a mustache like the Australian cricketer Merv Hughes. He was also from Yugoslavia, a a Yugoslav background, was divorced and worked on the roads. This description fitted Ivan like a glove. Yeah, especially the mustache part. He did have a quite a a gallant mustache. I'll give him that. Yeah, he he kind of. If, the, if Again, you think of an Australian mustache, we've discussed this a few times that quite a few of the killers we've covered have had quite magnificent facial hair. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty typical thing. Ed Kemper, H. H. Holmes, Ivan Milat. Uh, there was someone else. 
Uh, I think David Koresh had a really good mustache. Oh, um, BTK. We haven't covered him yet, but he oh, also right. had a had a great mustache. So onions was secretly, and I've stressed this part, secretly flown to Australia on 2nd of May and he took police to the spot near Blangelo Turnoff where the man attempted to rob and abduct him at gunpoint. He was shown 13 photographs of a video of uh, men matching his description and identified Ivan Milat as the one who robbed him. He said, I remembered the mustache. See? See? Shave that. If you're going to murder people, shave that shit right off. Milat's ex-wife, Karen who we've also come full circle since the first episode, has confirmed that Malat made trips to the forest as far back as the early 1980s. At last, the police were ready to move and they planned a raid on the seven properties owned by the Malat family. On May 21st, three detectives from Task Force Air, which I can't stress enough is like the coolest name for a Task Force Air ever. I don't know. I feel like... Task f- you, I feel like you could make it so much cooler. True. Yeah, I can't think of anything. Task Force Shadow. <laughs> task Force Lightning. So anyway, Task Force Air flew to Queensland to re-interview Alex Malat about his claimed sighting of the two women in the forest in 1992. There, his wife Joan handed them a backpack she said Ivan had given them, saying it belonged to a friend who had returned to New Zealand and did not need it anymore. Subsequent tests showed that it had once belonged to Simone Schmidl, which, if you remember the first episode, was one of the victims. Police were also alerted that when Joan made some unsolicited comments about serial killers keeping trophies from their victims. The night Ivan was caught by a relative in a nearby town of Bargo telling him police had been around asking about a silver Nissan four-wheel drive he had once owned. At 2am, his brother William rang to say he too had been questioned about the car and his involvement in an armed robbery. At 6.36am on Sunday, 22nd May, police called Ivan Malat's home and told him to come out with his arms stretched out. Malat claims he thought the call was a prank and ignored the order. After a third call, he and his girlfriend, Chalindala Hughes, which I had never seen that name before in my life. Chalindala. Chalinda. Chalinda. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, A public servant came out to find 50 heavily armed police officers surrounding them. Jesus. The investigators were confident that they had their man, but now they just had to prove it with hard facts. Soon after his arrest, Ivan was interrogated by detectives for at least three hours at his home. He was asked if he had ever used the name Bill, and if he owned firearms, or if he ever used a Ruger 10-22 rifle, which, as we covered in the last episode, was a very very specific gun. um, gun, only... Only really found in America. He, of course, said no to each question. The next day, he appeared in Campbelltown local court charged with armed robbery and using a revolver with intent to commit indictable offence to relation to Paul Onions. It wasn't until the 31st of May that he was formally charged with the murder of the seven backpackers, the attempted abduction of Paul Onions, and several firearm offences. 
From day one, Milat denied all charges, but behind the scenes, investigators were seizing a wealth of ballistics, scientific and physical evidence. The irony was that most came from the ordinary brick suburban building worth around $100,000 that Ivan called home and appeared to be uh, a Maccabee of trophies of his exploits. Milat had... Ample time to dispose of the evidence, but he didn't. Well, because that's the thing with those. They're so cocky, they think they'll never get caught. Exactly. So the evidence found, and I'll list it off here, at 22 Cinnabar Street was, just to say the least, uh, incredible. Malat's bedroom, they found a 38... They found, sorry, 38 22 cartridges in a tin and electrical tape similar to that found at the murder scenes. In a spare room was a manual for a Ruger 10-22, more ammunition, and a Bowie knife. And in the laundry was a 32 caliber Browning pistol with its ammunition. Then, in a wall cavity were parts found to be a Ruger trigger assembly, which test shows were used in the murders. In a cupboard were more than part were more parts of the gun Malat denied he had ever owned, together with the map showing, guess, the burial sites, the blank low state forest. Oh, but they weren't like individually marked out. No, right. Police who had spent months getting nowhere with the investigation just were baffled because everything they needed was right in front of them. Yeah. Soon they turned up a water bottle that had belonged to a German the German victim, Simone Schmidl, and a Olympus camera that had belonged to Caroline Clark. They also found small amounts of foreign coins from all of the countries that the backpackers had visited en route to Australia. Mm. More disturbingly, in the garage was a pillowcase containing five sash cords. One had bloodstains that DNA tests showed were consistent with the blood belonging to a child born to Ian and Jacqueline Clark, obviously referring to Caroline Clark. Yeah. There was also a tent which belonged to Simone and a homemade silencer for a rifle. Malat shared the house with his sister, Shirley Soir. In her bedroom were found sleeping bags belonging to Deborah Everest and Simone Schmiedel. Which, a quick side note, so I'm currently reading the John Douglas novel, Mm. and I've just gotten up to a point where he discovers, or rather tells, that a lot of murderers take trophies and give them to women in their lives. And a lot of the times, it tends to be women that have some sort of dominance over them, or some sort of, you know, uh, clear persuasion over them i guess it's kind of like the ultimate show of dominance like giving them what they view as a gift exactly and actually like that's I took exactly this off someone i murdered it's it's not only is it a uh, whenever you look at it it's a recollection of the murder you just did which as has been found out through many of the the killers we've discussed they the the souvenirs they keep allow them to relive the murders yeah but it's also a dominance over someone who is in their life who is predominantly dominant over them. Just a a little interesting thing I sort of found. So in the court, it was alleged that Malat asked her to dispose of a Colt forty-five pistol, which he had buried in the garden. It was claimed that Ivan's brother, Walter, sold the weapon to a stranger and passed it on to 
the $800 to Shirley. Another key piece of evidence was a photograph of Malat's girlfriend, Chalinda Hughes, in a green and white uh, Benetton top, exactly the same as the one that Caroline Clark brought with her to Australia. Oh, that's gross. Yep. Uh, there was more than one. There was more to come. Sorry, at the various homes of the Malat clan, who anonymous, anonymously callers to the police hotline had caught a hillbilly family. The family remained close together over the years, especially the five brothers Ivan, Wally, Billy, Alex, and Richard, who shared a love of hunting, shooting, and cars. In Walter's home was an and Schutz. 22 rifle and a bolt of the type used at the murder scene of Anya Habsheed and her boyfriend, as well as a pack that had been at Simone's um, property. Mm. At Richard's property were Caroline Clark's tent and bedroll. At Alex Millat's home in West Wy- uh, Wombai, sorry, Queensland, police were handed Simone's backpack. And at the Milat mother's home in, in a Sydney suburb of Guildford, where Milat was living at the time of the murders, were found a T-shirt belonging to Simone and a Next Brand T-shirt that Paul Onions formally identified as his. Oh, wow. It seems as though the case was closed. However, all the mounting evidence was still, at this point, circumstantial. How is that circumstantial? That's the thing. That's the thing about the legal system. There was nothing really that put Ivan Milat in the forest at the time of any of the deaths. And although there were a number of strong leads, including evidence that he owned the property of theirs, nothing could really be used in the court of law. Mm. So such leads uh, also brought to light the really weird story of Alex Milat, Alex Milat told police as the second group of bodies were being discovered. He claimed that in Easter 1992, as he drove past a Blangelo State Forest on a dirt road, he had seen, uh, again, those two girls who were bound and gagged up in the in the two passing four-wheel drives. So this was one of the things that kind of they recalled back to. Yeah. It, it was something they couldn't really get out of their minds. So they were kind of intrigued by this weird confession that um, he made to, as I said before, the different co-workers. But also, um, later investigation discovered that the registration numbers Alex had given them matched part of the registration of a car which his brother Ivan once owned. Mm. So to come full circle on that. Yeah. So, you know, was it a red herring? Was he trying to confuse police? We have a, We have previous evidence of him... And his brothers, obviously, not working with police and sticking together with, with the brothers, but, you know. Um, police were also intrigued by a confession that Milat allegedly made to a former prisoner called Noel Manning, with whom he had shared a cell while awaiting his rape trial in 1974. Manning told police officers that Milat had explained how he had raped a girl after stabbing her spine to paralyze her. Jesus So the victim could Christ. see the crime, but couldn't stop it. Oh my god. Although this was years earlier than the backpacker murders, three of the seven victims had been stabbed in the spine, as we've oh my covered. God. 
There was evidence all the victims had been somewhat sexually assaulted. Manning told his story before the details of Malat's murder were made public, but it was never found and able to repeat them in court. Yeah. He died in an apparent suicide weeks before the trial began. So more evidence began to pile up against Ivan Malat. Uh, it would also be kept from the jury, but th- this time for legal reasons. This was the story of the 1971 rape case. So just to kind of end things off, because we know he was a, he was tried and and he was obviously found guilty for all the charges of murder and all the victims. But um, the the thing that kind of was the nail in the coffin was the 1971 rape case. Yeah. So 9th of April 1971. At this point, 26 years old, Milat hit the road in his Ford Falcon V8. Obviously, hunting for hitchhikers, he at Liverpool he picked up those two 18 year old girls wanting to live to Melbourne. Both were undergoing psychiatric treatment and were on Valium. The girls dozed off and awoke on a dirt road where Malat produced knives and told them that he was going to have sex with both of them. He brazenly promised, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill you. You won't scream when I cut your throats, will you? Malat then bound their hands and feet with nylon cord and proceeded to rape one of the girls in the front seat. And this would be kind of one of the the kind of, you know, biggest things against Ivan Malat that kind of placed him as one of the prime suspects and really just cemented the idea that he was behind these killings. Yeah. So, yeah, that's essentially the story of... Ivan Milat. Well done. Yeah, it's a it's a very big one. And he his story has kind of lived for years and inspired the Wolf Creek movie and the subsequent TV series that's also come out. It's like if 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 it isn't clear, it, it had such a huge impact on Australia. Yeah. Like it's, it's it wasn't a thing like California killings and the, the kind of time period in the 1970s to in America the, where, where it was kind of, there was a huge Almost spree. Almost commonplace. Of, yeah. yeah. But in Australia, it wasn't really a thing. I mean, obviously we've had murders and we've talked about a couple of Australian murders in Australia, but yeah, it's just not a huge thing. Mm. Can I just say, yes. while you were telling your story and I was looking up pictures of Ivan Milat, mm-hmm. um, I found an article. So in Australia, we have this... Uh, satirical website called The Chaser where they basically oh. make up news articles and they have an article about Malat titled Taken Too Soon, Ivan Malat Dies at 74 Before Every Australian Had a Chance to Kick Him in the Groin. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah, wow. Incredible. But yeah, that was um really well done. Thank you. That was very well done. I yeah, enjoyed that a it's lot. A, it's a very interesting story because... Again, it's, you know, one of those weird things where you pick up a lot of interesting tidbits from their early yeah, life. Yeah, well, I think it's one of those stories where, as an, as Australians, you've heard his name for your entire life, but not many people actually research his story. Yeah. So. There's a lot of weird trauma things. I didn't, we didn't really notice any head trauma or really neglect from the parents, but... Obviously, the there's the whole thing of 
being trained to use weapons as a kid. We, well, his we, father was abusive as well, didn't you say? Yeah, it was pretty abusive. But yeah. it wasn't like... Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of parents were abusive and they don't, you know, turn yeah, up. Yeah, that's true. At that, at that level. So we're not talking about like Ed Kemper's mother abusive. We're talking about like he was striking them. Yeah. But no, whenever they true. were in trouble, it wasn't just like she re- he resented them. It was like whenever they were in trouble, he would beat the shit out of them. Which, you know, at the time of their childhood, it's a pretty fucking common thing. Yeah. Not okay now. No. Like to just firmly put our stance on that. Not Absolutely. okay to beat your children. But Not yeah, at all. Don't do it. And there's nothing really to apart yeah. from because we can't we have this like common idea of like what a hillbilly kind of is and not to like be derogatory or really label anyone or pin anyone into a, a stereotype but the hillbillies that often get novelized or mm. rather stand out are the ones that are large families a, a lot of um gun usage and having guns around, typically some sort of illegal activity, whether it be like stealing cars, running drugs, running guns. Yeah. And that was all prevalent in the Malat family. Well, there's a lot of people who do not believe he acted alone, which... Clearly he fucking didn't. I don't think he did either. You Like when you were talking about those crimes, it really sounded like there were two different things. And then also apparently his uh cousin or his grand something murdered someone with an axe. Yeah, you in, were talking about that. In a similar area in Belangelo. Yeah. So it seems to be a common thing amongst some of these kids. Like there were there were fourteen children. Five or six of them brothers particularly were very close. Yeah. And we know for a fact that during Ivan's first marriage with the pregnant ex-partner of his cousin, mm. that he was having a feud with several family members at the time. Yeah, so I just looked it up. A teenage relative of backpacker killer Ivan Malat has been jailed for at least 30 years for the axe murder of a friend in bushland south of Sydney. Very interesting. In Belangelo State Forest, the wow. same place where Ivan Malat buried seven victims. Holy shit. He was uh, lured there, tortured and murdered on his 17th birthday by two 19-year-olds, Cohen Klein and Matthew Malat, who was Ivan Malat's great-nephew. Oh, Cohen Klein. Why does that sound familiar? Not sure. Malat was jailed for 43 years with a non-parole period of 30 years, while Klein was jailed for up to 32 years with a minimum sentence of 22. Crazy. That's... Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's just It's one of those things, man, where you can't really pinpoint it. Mm. But yeah, that was interesting the, that the... The the psych the psychiatrist who gave a profile of the murderers and how he stated that the two victims from I believe England um, had died in different ways. Yeah. So one was non sexually uh, attributed, 
or motivated rather. Yeah. And the other was 100%. Mm. But yeah, it's kind of crazy that uh, they chose to do it in the same place that his great uncle had done. Yeah. I mean, they fucking got away with it for so long. Maybe they thought they'd get away with it too. Yeah. Crazy. Well, that was a good episode. Yeah. Very well done. We don't have a um, six degrees of separation. No, sadly, we don't have a six degrees story this week. Hopefully, we'll be back next week. But, I mean, we're still a little show. As we get bigger and our audience gets bigger, we'll have more access to stories. So, as usual, if you do have a six degrees of separation story that you would like to send to us... Please get in contact. We're on all of the socials at the BSC podcast or our email is bestofcoldpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Please do send in stories because it's a very interesting and, yeah, and, inter- like and it's nice to break up the episode a bit too with it. Yeah. You know, exactly. It's kind of refreshing. Um, and it's nice to have, you know, and, in, and seeing people's interest in the in the show and yeah, wanting nice to be included. Yeah, other people involved. Yeah. I've been enjoying it. So sadly, we don't have a story this week, but hopefully we'll be back next week with a six degrees of separation story for you. If you've got one, send it our way. Yeah. Well, well I suppose we should close out the show with what we're thankful for. You go first. Okay. I am thankful for this weekend we're about to spend together because we're going to go for a little drive down south if it's not raining hopefully if it's not raining so don't, i don't think it is but we're going to there's a there's a couple of um famous south coast pie shops pie that we're going to they're going to go on a little pie expedition yeah it's going to be fun nice little escape from kind of all this weird shit going on at the moment yeah you know well um, that's me my grateful thing i Oh, my grateful thing, it's so something so simple, but I have been going to bed early this week and I've had some really like a whole good night's yeah. week's worth of sleep. And I'm honestly really grateful for that because I am someone who probably does not sleep as much as I should. And the fact that I've been making a concerted effort to try and be asleep by 11 to get a good eight hours of sleep, I do feel... A little bit more rested and I'm sure next week when I'm back to uni I'll go back to only getting about six hours of sleep so it's been nice oh, while yeah. it lasted yeah oh and our um friends got a puppy and oh and she's so cute also picked a date for their wedding but you know that's the exciting the puppies yeah. are weddings and puppies that's all I wanted congrats life. on the weddings now onto the puppy <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add. Do we want to add a secret code word for those in the know? Yeah. Um, how about how about this? I will send a voice recording of me personally thanking anyone who... who sends us the secret code word either... via text, social media email yeah send the secret code word we'll send you a personalized thank you what is the secret code word tama red rocket
Okay. It's weird. Sure. Red Rocket. Red Rocket. The secret code word for this week is Red Rocket. Shoot us through a message on something with the secret code word Red Rocket and we will send you a personalized thank you message. Yeah. And if you send me images of Red Rockets, I will block you. Yeah, don't. Don't send us. Please do not. Unless it's like an actual rocket. Yeah, it's wholesome as fuck. red. Yeah. But uh, the other kind we don't. We don't want to. Yeah, I will. I will. I will instead send you a voice message of me cussing you out, and I'll get a personalized email from all the people who have one start our podcast, and send it to you as well. Wow. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for the best of cold team. Um, thanks for joining us. I really enjoyed this week's episode. The content from both of us. I think I enjoyed writing. And researching my own, I enjoyed listening to yours. I can't believe how many um, episodes we've gotten up to as well. No, we're nearly at 20. Yeah. I have been teasing the idea of a pretty big case for our 10,000 download special. That's an interesting one, though, because I feel like that would have to be a multiple parter. You couldn't it is. just do one episode on that. It's not. So, I it's going to be a three-parter for sure, but I think the first part will come as a, like, 10,000 download special. Yeah. So, share, subscribe, review, mm. help us get to... I mean, we're really not far. Do I want to tease what it is or... I don't think so. Just Give leave them. Surprise. Leave them hanging. Right. Well, it's a pretty big case, and you know, it's one of those cases where I'm sure you'd love to, you know, listen in and get more information about because it's very popular. But again, such is the the way with a lot of the cases we cover. Not it's everyone not knows the Bundy. details. Not it's the not Bundy, Bundy though, because I no. think I speak for everyone when I say I'm a bit over Bundy. Yeah, Bundy is like the friends of murderers. It's like it's good. And it's classic. And and you but, can watch it over and over, but then you need like a little break. Yeah, look, like, once Zac Efron funny. started playing, it was kind of like, all once, right, Okay, just... once I realized that there was like a cult following on Tumblr of girls that call him daddy, I was oh, like, uh-uh, I'm out. Up. I am yeah. so out. No. I'm not playing anyone's fetish. People or like love him. It's so strange. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, like, I, objectively... And I don't is... think he's an attractive guy. No. Everyone always talks about how women fell for him because he was attractive. I look at him and I'm like, he looks like like the creepy neighbor that you don't want to talk to. He's got a monobrow. He's just, I don't know. Maybe it's because I know he's a serial killer. So I look at his photos and I'm yeah, like, that's you a good point. are creepy. But I don't find him attractive at all. So I find it incredibly weird that there's girls who are like, mm, Daddy Bundy. Uh, no, stop it. Do you think it's his look or you think it's the idea that he that he's such a demonized person? Oh, I don't know. I don't honestly, I do not want to think. That's an interesting psychological evaluation. All I'll say is if you're listening to this and you are a female who romanticizes and fantasizes about Ted Bundy, sweetie, I just want you to <laughs> sit down. Yeah. Think about your life choices. Call a doctor. And maybe seek some psychological help. Yeah. I say this with love. Reevaluate your life choices. Yeah. Don't romanticize serial killers. Please stop it. Just watch Aquaman and, you know, finger yourself over Jason Momoa like oh, all the rest of us. That is the second episode where you've said that and I don't, please <laughs> don't say it ever again. I really, I genuinely, I'm, I'm serious. I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> it's not good. All right. 
Stop it. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Oi. All right. Well, thanks. Fuck off. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I don't, I don't know how to come back from fingering yourself. Well, you kind of just stepped all over my fingering. Oh, so you said it again. You said it as well. Yeah, but I said it as a put down. I don't you can't know. just be like, don't say this word, and then you say it. You're no better than Makes whatever me uncomfortable. the name is. Who, anyway. You know, us. Oy. We always end up in a weird place in these. I think we go a little crazy. Well, yeah. We, I mean, we, we basically just have... We, we write notes essentially all week when we on our off time. We and Then we go off script at the end. Well, we, we then we record everything we've written, and then it's kind of like our brains being like, Holy fuck. Shut down. <laughs> this is... Shut down process initiated. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for joining in. Follow us on the socials. Follow us on social at the BSC podcast. Email us if you have a six degrees of separation story. Best served cold podcast at gmail.com. We hope you have a fantastic week and yep. we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget the code word red rocket mm-hmm. and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Uh, also just... Uh, we're on coffee, uh, or I think it's Ko-Fi. I'm not too sure what the oh. pronunciation is. Um, oh, yeah. Buy us uh, a coffee on Ko-Fi, Yeah, I it you is. can... Sorry, I should have said that at the start because yeah. no one listens to the end of these things. We do have a website where you can donate very small amounts, so $3, and it helps support the show. It's just a one-off donation. Yep. The idea is, is I, think it's cof- I think it's pronounced coffee because the okay. idea is you're buying you're us buying a, coffee, a coffee, but we do have a goal which we're going to be putting the any money that's donated towards buying the ingredients for the cocktails we make. And thank yep. you to Emily and Kim, who have kindly already donated um, small amounts of money. We really appreciate any support that we get for the show. And I'll leave the link in our show notes if yeah. you would like to donate to the show. Yeah, and uh, once again, thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. We will also have a link in our show notes for that Uh, and with that we will see you in a week's time Bye. bye